Hello, welcome to the Film Geek Collective. Today, we're going to uh, cover the movie North by Northwest, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, released in 1959. So, yeah. Ah, does anyone mind if I sit down? I've been running all day. That's a reference, I won't tell you the context. So, this one will be mostly clean, except there are, you know, chaste but possibly risque references, but not enough to make it, to make me mark it explicit. So parental guidance is highly recommended if young children are around. So yeah, North by Northwest is actually pretty good, I must say. I really liked it as a thriller. I really liked it as a, you know, the, the I'm not going to say too much because I'll save a lot of that stuff for the spoiler section, obviously. Because if you've never seen North by Northwest, you've got to. You've got to. It, it is a must see. I'm surprised that I avoided it for 18 years. Yeah, I'm 18. I've got a lot of movies to catch up on, and the Hitchcocks I've seen are Psycho, Vertigo, and North by Northwest, as of recording. So, yeah, I uh, I think that uh, the title sequence is absolutely fantastic. You know, I can explain a few things here that aren't really spoilers or anything. So, you know, it's strange how the MGM logo is, like, black and white, but there's, like, this weird off-kilter green background, and, you know, Sol Bass was the guy responsible for the title sequence for this movie, which Sol Bass is a very talented man. He did Psycho, Vertigo, but, you know, he helped on many others, whether Hitchcock or no. I'm pretty sure he did this intro with live-action cats strutting around. I think it was Walk on the Wild Side, a film which I've not seen, but I've... I think I've seen that title sequence. You can probably search it up. Check out the website Art of the Title. Sorry, Art of the Title, if you want to know more about title sequences. But I'm getting away from the point here. So yeah, the credits do note that the movie's in VistaVision, which is a widescreen process that Paramount licensed to other studios liberally, like MGM, who made this movie. Screens used to appear like the shape of an old television, four by three, and not all theaters handled widescreen. But considering its proper introduction in the early 50s, and the movies released in the late 50s, many cinemas could play this on the intended shape of screen, with the projector set to 185 to 1. Uh, just for you aspect ratio buffs, we had 166, 185, and 2 to 1. Um, or 2 by 1 if you prefer to say by instead of 2. Uh, some people have complained about that on some forums that I've read. I read around. So, yeah... Basically, the radio, the ratio is pretty close to the television width and height. Maximum height and maximum width is what VistaVision advertised. So these Hitchcock films in widescreen were reasons to go to the movies. You know, they really needed people to go to the movies because television was a big competition. Ironically, the first time you watch many classic films is on television. Even Martin Scorsese did this with his black and white television and Italian films. But yeah... It uses its frame, again roughly the same shape of your TV screen you have in front of you, to have almost full bodies taking the height of the frame or for buildings to appear taller. There are more vertical locations in this movie than there are horizontal. And yeah, <laughs> the the film basically concerns an ad executive played by Cary Grant. He comes off a bit like a con man, to me at least. Funnily enough, this is released the same year that Mad Men started. Mad Men obviously started 2007, but the show itself starts in 1959, same year this movie released. You could call this movie Mad Men because the high stakes antagonizing forces, that's part of the basic premise and all. But yeah, I know that uh, shots always seem to hold longer in older movies, and I love that. I love that they hold longer. I've always liked 
not even long takes, just shots that would have several shots in one. This movie has at least one of those, which predates Steven Spielberg's, again, liberal use of it, which you'll notice in the Indiana Jones films, he'll have several, several different angles in one take without cutting for a while. Not too long, maybe a minute, but I thought I'd I thought I'd teach you about a bunch of different things, considering this is a film podcast. So, yeah, shots always hold longer. If it's half a minute or even a minute, sometimes there'll be a close-up as an insert shot, you know, cut away from the main action to show something important. I'd say it's like a type of close-up and insert shot. But, yeah, even Marie Saint from uh, On the Waterfront, she's in this film, she pops off the screen with the blonde hair and blue eyes contrasting with Cary Grant's brown eyes, dark hair. Now, due to the vibrant colours of the 1950s, even her lip, lips pop out more. I believe it's pink lipstick. I know this is a pretty long introduction, but considering I'm doing these weekly now, I feel like I have to make it longer, and I've also got a lot of information to say. And I always say, you know, I make it about as long as I've got something to say. So, yeah, I will try not to fill it with filler. <laughs> so, yeah, now for spoiler territory, but first... You know, if you've never if you've never seen the film, back away now, go see the film and then come back for my sort of like analysis of it. But I would like to give shout outs to the following people. Tessie Cat, Elsie Cool, Zach Ascott, Real Sharks Podcast, aka Ribbushaku, Mary Amber, that uh that Patrick guy, of course, uh Marbella Unicorn, uh Fisher Films eighty two film Mamatic, Cinemadness Podcast, KO, Caution Spoilers, um that's not quite yet, because I'm still doing the shout-outs, but that's the name, obviously. Savage Elbow, Lee JM75, Autistic in Melbourne, Naked Airplane, Still Mellow, Contrera, Heavenly Imagine, who has been nothing but awesome. She retweeted my video. Um, Rose Begali, you know, a bunch of people have retweeted the stuff. It's great. Thank you so much for all that. Whoever retweets, I'm especially grateful for. So continuing with the shout-outs, Larry... Dev Heiner, My Belly Unicorn, Talk Me Into Your Films with Amy, Zeus, Schlock V, Creative Fay, Just Here for the Violence, Ashy Slashy, Classic Blonde, L Salt Wine, and Eric Sluss. Pretty sure that's everyone. So, yeah. I really... I, I'm going to just uh, go into... So I'll say something first. If you haven't seen the video, you know, search up the Film Geek Collective on YouTube. I published a video just, uh, well, technically yesterday in Australian time, but maybe yesterday in UK time or whatever, you, you get you get it. But yeah, search that up and you'll see with the video. Without further ado, let's go into spoiler territory. Like, you know, I think that uh, in terms of what's established in the first 15 minutes, everyone knows that you've got to have really, you've got to establish everything in the first 15 minutes. Cary Grant conning people as an ad executive. Cary Grant has a busy schedule. Two men have him walk with them to, to an undisclosed location with concealed weapons. Only one scene, you know, they're crammed in the car. There's not much negative space around them. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's good little bits of dry humor that I really like. Like, could I stop at the drugstore so I can explain I'm being kidnapped? <laughs> uh, you know, there's actually, I was explaining earlier, pretty great shots about height and you know, making buildings, making people look small, buildings and later statues. So yeah, the shot I was talking about that really was Spielbergian but predated him was, you know, uh, the, the a woman allows Cary Grant and the kidnappers, or what he calls the kidnappers, into the house. You know, you can create dynamic movement around the frame almost. It's like three of them are in the shot and then it becomes a little bit wider, maybe 
maybe just above the knees or so, and then kind of the full body shot except for the feet. You know, they uh, they sort of make that two shots in one. Not too many when you consider what Spielberg has done, but remember, this definitely predated Spielberg, and I'm not sure if it would have inspired him or not. And again, Hitchcock inspired a lot of people, so just saying. But yeah... I think that every time, every time Cary Grant is sneaking around, he always goes right to left. And that's definitely important. Left to right is supposed to be morally right. Right to left is supposed to be the opposite. I think I explained that in my Full Metal Jacket episode, but I reiterated it here in case, you know, someone hasn't seen Full Metal Jacket, but they have seen this. So yeah, definitely. Another great consideration, if behind the scenes things can be done during filming itself, then it's great. In the library, another man walks in, the curtains are closed, and he turns on a lamp. Now during this scene, the man sits down with Carrie and another guy standing. The guy on the chair has the most power overall, sitting as if he's on a throne, questioning about, you know, information that our protagonist may or may not have. You know, uh, we cut to, uh, we cut to, back to all three in the same shot after we you know, have a shot of the woman asking something, but it looks down upon them as if there's a higher power. And we do find out, we we find out way before Roger does that Mr. Kaplan's made up, obviously. So, you know, uh, let's just, uh, I think I should definitely just uh, recap the 15-minute summary now. Okay, he's an ad executive, hangs out with his friends, he's taken away to a private mansion, mistaken for Mr. Kaplan, who doesn't exist, who checks in and out at hotels. I mean, the fact he doesn't exist is technically part of the fifth, like, like after the 15 minute mark or so. But, you know, Roger adamantly denies he's this guy, refuses to cooperate. Soon after he tries to escape, he's held back, he's forced to drink alcohol, he's driven again to another location, almost driven into a lake. But, you know, he kicks the guy out of the car. And, you know, we have the orientation of a character, and very soon he's put into a complication. Some films begin with the complication and build the orientation there, like in media res sort of thing, or Fight Club starts that way, in fact. But also, I'm, I'm also talking about films where, like on the waterfront, where the conflict starts immediately, and we get our orientations through how characters react to the conflict. Or you can have a slower sort of introduction character interactions only like the deer hunter or the godfather where there's no story until respectively 50 minutes in the deer hunter and 30 minutes in the godfather but they're still integral to make the characters feel more human in their own way in this case you know the complication is pretty soon into the movie and we get a good orientation through the writing and the staging and stuff so yeah a big Hitchcock trademark. Two Hitchcock trademarks I've noticed in this film, just after the opening credits. Bit of a cheeky touch. <laughs> uh, you know, he misses a tram, a tram closes on him, and he walks past his credit, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, which I thought is pretty funny. A big Hitchcock trademark is police as an antagonist, even if temporary. You know, Psycho kind of had that. That's not really a spoiler, right? It wouldn't, I would say. In North by Northwest, we have the police arrest Roger for driving drunk. Now, the reason police are portrayed so negatively as antagonizing forces in Hitchcock's films is because he has a real-life phobia of the police, or he had a real-life phobia. So, yeah, I note that when they give him the one phone call, that no one, like, no one in a movie says bye or anything close after they finish a phone call. And... You know, at least Roger here gets to say goodnight. <laughs> now, in any good movie, I'll 
sucks. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Tension keeps escalating in terms of conflict. He's forced to drink copious amounts of bourbon. He steals a car from an antagonist. He's arrested. He refuses a blood test. Chief from Get Smart has to defend him. Perhaps his mother called a lawyer. If so, then like the forced drinking, it was implied for viewers to put two and two together. I love when that happens. Just see No Country for Old Men for great examples of that. And see lessons from the screenplays video on No Country for Old Men. If you've seen that movie... I highly recommend both the movie and that video. So yeah, even worse, you know, every shred of proof being covered. How's that for paranoia feel? They can clean up a crime scene without you even knowing. You know, there's also, if you know, if you know the movie Drive from 2011, you'll know there's an elevator scene that uh, is quite memorable. I won't say because, you know, I don't want to give spoilers for Drive. But I think the elevator scene in this movie is even better. Roger entering a full elevator. Assassins walk in behind him before the door closes. He's trying to gesture they're there. He thought they'd be in the lobby. And his mother says to them, You're not really trying to kill my son, are you? Of course, there's laughter. But the tension never really resolves. Because then you get a... Then you get a cut to his mother, a bit nervous, almost. She laughs out of fear that they might do something. But she just wants to blend in with the crowd. No words. You just... The, the look on her face is fantastic. It's a tricky tonal balance that this film manages. It has some pretty funny lines. So, yeah. Several levels that are more like mezzanines. Dwarf Cary Grant in opposition to his then-unseen enemies. Perfect for the stakes of the film. And every man like us would easily panic and get lost. Again, he always seems to walk right to left in the building. As if sneaking around. So, I think that... And running thing in this film is quiet reveals. We, we pan somewhat quickly from Cary Grant and we pan to the right of him across the room. No sound of its own, just the announcement of the PA in the building, which isn't relevant. Uh, Roger meets Mr. Townsend and, of course, Roger has his back to the assassin. It's only dumb luck that uh, Mr. Townsend gasps when he, when he asks, Do you know this man? And Mr. Townsend's like, I know the guy. Then there's like the knife in his back. And of course, Roger's blamed. Like, obviously, Hitchcock thought of the situation. Put your protagonist in the worst situation you can and see what happens from there. You know? So, yeah, there's an exterior shot from a very long distance. I knew the from above thing was intentional. Like, it's from the top of the building as he gets into a taxi. So, yeah. Even George Kaplan not existing as a quiet reveal casually within the dialogue. Maybe even just a slightly raised voice at most. They don't need to yell, they're in a quiet building. Everything every character does is obviously sneaky, so no over-the-top theatrics unless they're diversions. Like blanks and, uh, you know, the framing Roger with the knife. You know, that sort of thing. So, yeah... As Roger gets to the UN, um, you know, there's obvious colour coding, blue backseat for him, red for the antagonists, but, you know, blue and red's a bit cliche, but who knows, these old movies invented the cliches, not necessarily this one, but okay, moving on. So, yeah, what recurs so far? Shots of huge crowds, shots from above, shots where Cary Grant sneaks right to left, fading to another take of basically the same thing to show time pass and quiet reveals with subtle or no music. And of course, Hitchcock loved blondes, Janet Leigh in Psycho, Kim Novak in Vertigo, and in this film, Eva Marie Saint as Eve, who also thinks Roger murdered Townsend, but won't tell. 
Now, on a side note, his initials on the cigarette lighter, Rut, were, I think, really a foreshadowing of how cigarettes destroy throats, not intentionally being 1959. There's a clear chemistry, but there's nothing graphic whatsoever. This is why I recommended parental guidance, because I wanted to discuss a few things that might not be the most appropriate for young children. Uh, so, yeah, I <laughs> I really like all the innuendos. Nice of him to have, to have opened the bed. Only one bed. You know, the Hayes Code made couples sleep in separate beds, so they're never, like, I think it's more like a chair to me, but it is a bed, but they treat it more like a chair, so is that either that or they were more lenient about people being in bed? I'm actually not sure, but this was made during the Hayes Code. The fact that they even got those two on a train bed together honestly surprises me, but everything's tastefully really implied. Notice some little bits outside of that also are done without dialogue. The start of the elevator scene, or Roger and another man shaving next to each other in the men's bathroom after Roger's been framed. The second man thinking you might recognise him. Several people in several phone booths. They really can't meet. The phone booths are in the left third of the frame, and there's negative space where anything could pop out of anywhere. And that's another thing that really runs through this film. Negative space. Just plain space you know and it's used perfectly what's not seen it's not a horror movie but horror movies often use what's not seen and this film does that to an extent so definitely i think i think i've said before that thrillers are kind of in their own way horror films or horrors or thrillers or something like that i forgot which episode i said it in but i did say it um, that's kind of true here, although it's not going for a horror feeling, it's going for, well, still, you're in suspense, you're anxious, anything could pop out at any moment, isn't that a little tiny, tiny bit like horror? So, yeah. So, let's go to a bit earlier, when Cary Grant is, uh, coming out of the train with Eva Marie Saint. Now, Cary Grant's wearing the red cap that he obviously stole from the train guy. That's a great example of colour, because, think about it, in the, in the phone booth scene, we've seen... Uh, guards who have blue uniforms and, you know, the, uh, the train guy had a red uniform, obviously. Strong primary colours, and this is what Hitchcock used colour for. He really had a great colour scheme in mind. Less so in this movie and more so in Vertigo. But still, Hitchcock fans will definitely know how good he is in both black and white and colour. So, yeah. So, back to just after the airport scene, the famous crop duster scene. Now, for about 10 seconds... More or less, give or take, uh, you know, we have a shot of from a long distance and above where Cary Grant is just minuscule. I mean, it's almost like there's a sniper on a roof, except there's no roof. It's almost like a helicopter that's standing still. It's either supernatural or a security camera. Who knows? But yeah, every noise matters here if he's quiet. I mean, you know, he's... Sorry, I wrong choice of words there. You know, every... If he's quiet... Every noise matters here. That's what I meant to say. Sorry about that. Um, but no music is audible. Cars and trucks slowly approach the frame when we get a closer look. The truck somewhat more quickly than the car. He's even suspicious of a car in the long distance driving somewhat toward the camera. You know, a blue car that appears innocent, and it is. Guy that gets a bus. The bus is safe. We're taught to think vehicles are safe. We think the crop duster in the background is just... It's okay. It's fine. That's funny. That plane's dusting crops where there ain't no crops. And that's what the brown-suited man says. But the last vehicle is safe. It's the crop duster that they used rear projection, I believe. I think it was rear projection where they projected it behind him and uh, made it look pretty convincing for the time. So the, the plane keeps following him. It shoots at him. Still no music. 
There's a bit of a break, just a little bit. He's hiding within the cornfield, and the plane seems to miss him. But it gasses, like it looks like it gasses the cornfield. We never feel secure. Always paranoid. And there's only music as the crop duster flies into and explodes a tank on a truck. The drivers of the truck survive, and there are witnesses. Now there's another recurring theme. They only see the aftermath, and they come back with the wrong evidence. One crime Mr Thornhill does commit is stealing the ute. I'm sorry, the pickup truck. I'm Australian, I call it a ute. I call it a ute, okay? <laughs> Australians, you will know. <laughs> so anyway, um, the colour really pops in this film when Eve appears in a black dress. You know, she's a long, cooler woman in a black dress. I'm sure some of you know that song. Um, back to the point, um, covered in a pattern of red flowers in contrast to the plain room and suit. Eve's red necklace sparkles. Roger thinks he has a long and lasting friendship, but Eve is obviously enamored. Despite this, she says the make out on the train was one time and it won't go further. Eat your heart out, Ross and Rachel. Here's the real will they, won't they? <laughs> uh, Carrie Grant does end up, I'm not sure if this was really deliberate or improvised or whatever, but he ends up whistling, singing in the rain um, when he's in the bathroom. And, you know, I think the whole exchange where Eve tells him to take a cold shower when he's when they're clearly getting ahem, a little passionate, <laughs> you know, uh, is how Hitchcock really used less is more during the era of the Hays Code. He pushed censorship a lot, particularly with uh, the beginning of Psycho, where they're, where they're clearly in lingerie in the same bed. But, you know, that was a bit further than this movie took it. So, yeah, I think that uh, there's plenty of great innuendo during uh, Eva Marie Saint and Cary Grant scenes. Absolutely excellent playing with the rules a bit instead of outright breaking them. Now, breaking them is definitely great in terms of censorship, but, you know. Um, excellent lines that go something like this. I think this is uh, just before the auction. You know, I, I like how I like how Cary Grant just says, the only time you'll be impressed with that my acting is when I play dead. It's something like that. Your next role. You'll be quite convincing, I will assure you. <laughs> Definitely a confrontation, but subtextual, the best type. Direct confrontation, in my opinion. In terms of... Okay, I'll just read what I got here. Direct confrontation, in my opinion, should either be used sparingly or with purpose to the plot. In the second... In the purpose to the plot, we have Star Wars in the original trilogy where every set piece obviously matters. But indirect confrontation's best within dialogue until necessary is what I really mean to say. And it's damn hilarious sometimes. Except when it isn't. Eve tries to directly confront the man threatening Roger. She tries to punch the man, but she's restrained, and we see the tears in her eyes as she's forced to stay quiet. Now, couple that with the later reveal that she's actually, uh one of the agents, you know, I can suddenly understand, like, it totally makes perfect sense, I love when a twist makes perfect sense, it's awesome, and another indirect confrontation, Cary Grant ridicules the man auctioning something for more than it's worth, does not budge on his price, you know, he attempts to humiliate him by devaluing, devaluing the items, tries to make himself appear less serious, so perhaps he can buy this important item. This causes direct confrontation. You know, the man tries to get him to leave, then Roger punches him in front of the other people. But still, that was just not fair. Now, I believe I've been seeing Red throughout the movie at this point, and I believe it was definitely deliberate, because Red, in colour theory, raises your blood pressure, you know? Like, even in A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger's famous sweater, Red and Green 
the most famously clashing colours to the human eye. It's more of an eyesore. But in this case, they just use plain red. I was just using the nightmare example as an example of colour theory in general, how you can mix things up a little. But in this case, you have... Uh, in North by Northwest, red doors, red seats, a red plane wing, red raises blood pressure, and I believe red is used with great intention in this movie. Only sporadically romantic, but mostly to raise your blood pressure. And at 94 minutes on the DVD, see it's a PAL DVD in Australia, so that means it's like 4% sped up. Same thing happens in the UK, by the way. Um, Rogers told about Mr. Kaplan not being real. So yeah, it takes... I'd say approximately a full hour for him to re- realize that in movie time, but you know, many days and nights in in, uh, in what would be real life time. That's the beauty of movies: condensing events if you need to. Obviously, you know. Uh, I think that he's definitely kind of aware of the red herring trope when he says, "Listen to me, I'm an advertising man, not a red herring." <laughs> I mean, that's the first time I've personally heard a character be aware of such a trope, and in this case. You know, Rogers asked to embody it. And yeah, here it is when Eve is revealed to be one of the agents. Shoots him twice in the stomach with blanks. And I like that uh, within the woods, during the whole Mount Rushmore climax, which is incredibly suspenseful, may I add, even more so than Vertigo, in my opinion, Mount Rushmore can be seen in part in the uppermost corner. And then at the top of the frame, constantly reminding us we're near the location. This is also during the shot where two cars are across the frame and we have Roger and Eve on opposite corners. They walk closer together. He apologizes to her. She reveals she shot him with blanks. They talk and kiss. She says goodbye so she can cover her tracks. And of course, you know, I believe that this movie has a great, great sense of humor. Don't you love mostly serious movies with a great sense of humor like The Martian or North by Northwest or whatever? Like, this dialogue exchange, Eve saying, this is the time you're supposed to be critically wounded, and Roger saying, I've never felt more alive. (laughs) Now, as Roger tries to sneak into a house near Mount Rushmore, he looks out. The shot would usually last a couple seconds, but this lasts ten. Nothing appears, and it's all the more suspenseful, because in the other instances, something appears. Colour is expertly used in this uh, scene where Eve is still in the house, to make her stand out in the window as Roger tries to get her attention. Her dress is orange, but every colour around her is in comparison muted. The shot's from a mild distance. It's not like a close-up or anything, because realistically you need binoculars for that sort of close-up. I mean, Hitchcock suspended disbelief on quite a few things, but, you know, he still kept that sense of realism you needed for a non-fantastical thriller like this, even with all his famous stylizations that I love. So, yeah. As Roger tries to sneak into the house, he looks out. The shot would usually last a couple seconds as he's trying to sneak, as he's trying to see if there's any vehicles or whatever. But this lasts 10. Oh, wait. I already said that. Sorry, my bad. Um, It's harder to cut that out, so forgive me for the repetition there. Okay. Good but obvious shot. The camera suddenly goes upward, tilts down when the two antagonists say something about height. You know, dropping them into the water made a bit more effective. But we cut to a close-up of Cary Grant, not found, but clearly worried. Um, Without the height, they actually used this technique in an earlier scene in the first Die Hard movie. So yeah, I guess you can see patterns, huh? So yeah, note in the scene where Roger signals he's there secretly to Eve, we get a close-up of the rut cigarette box thing 
when Roger looks at it, writes in it, but Eve looking at it doesn't get a close-up because we already saw it. Efficiency. Her studying it, even from the back, even if we see it from the back, is more important. And we need the antagonists in frame. They're talking, you know? We've got to kind of be aware they're always there around her. They can see whatever she's doing. If they were out of frame, we'd subconsciously kind of forget that. We'd just kind of be focused on a redundant close-up of the rut cigarette box. So how could I not mention... Okay, here it is. Here it is. The main part of the Mount Rushmore climax, because the whole bit of the film is set around Mount Rushmore. That's why I called it uh, genuinely full of tension, much like the romance. They climb down, evading the men after them. Constant shots, reiterating height, one head almost filling the right side of the frame. The protagonists dwarfed or looking up at the head as the other part of the frame has them climbing down or the stone heads otherwise dominating the frame. Things continue dropping to add even more tension. That's a common trick these days, but, you know. I think the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, they used one of those shots in the trailer. Um, Hyde is used especially effectively when the antagonist is in the bottom right corner in North by Northwest, obviously. And the protagonists are in the middle left near the top. Another antagonist catches him, but is pushed to his death and the other one is shot. And of course, the final moments of this film are absolutely glorious. <laughs> I cannot believe he got this past the censors of the day. So Eve is pulled up to safety off the cliff. And then the two of them are in the train bed that folds out from the top. And then hilariously, the train goes into the tunnel. Totally slipped the censor's mind. And yet there it is. Right plain there. I can't believe how much Hitchcock got away with. <laughs> it is legitimately amazing. I hate the Hayes Code. I hated the Hayes Code as much as he obviously did, trying to get past it with all these things, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I think that uh, I'm grateful to live in a world where we can tell stories like, obviously, you know, it's great for some stories where it's more implied and stuff like North by Northwest, but then you have your fight clubs, your bad boy bubbies, your your risque Rocky Horror Picture Show type things, your crime, stu your crime studies like Seven, you know, those movies would never be made unless the Hays Code was abolished totally um, by 1967. You know, we even had films that pushed it like The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Cool Hand Luke, Once the Code Was Over, you know, and yeah. I'm against, I'm, I'm basically against censorship as long as the thing in question is not illegal. You know what I mean? Okay, so ending the podcast here. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Go see my video if you haven't already. Search up the Film Geek Collective on YouTube. And yeah, if you want to inspire, create, innovate, electrify, we need your voice because you can change things for the better, all right? Now go out there and make things. All right? All right. <laughs>